I should like to see any power of the world destroy this race, this small tribe of unimportant people, whose wars have all been fought and lost, whose structures have crumbled, literature is unread, music is unheard, and prayers are no more answered. Go ahead, destroy Armenia. See if you can do it. Send them into the desert without bread or water. Burn their homes and churches. Then see if they will not laugh, sing, and pray again. For when two of them meet anywhere in the world, see if they will not create a new Armenia. They are perhaps the most well-known words ever written about the resiliency of the Armenian people. Playwright William Saroyan, who was living in New York City at the time, put those words to paper back in 1935, 20 years after the first genocide of the 20th century had begun. In the nearly five generations that have passed since 1915, many of the survivors and their offspring have made homes in other parts of the world. They've built new churches and created new Armenian communities that continue to thrive today. Indeed, there are now more Armenians in the diaspora than there are in our homeland. But our connection to and our love for Armenia is stronger than ever. We have also not forgotten, nor will we ever forget, those who died in the genocide. On this special edition of Talking Vartan, the Knights and Daughters of Vartan podcast, we'll honor the victims and survivors of the Armenian genocide in words and music. We'll hear from our Grand Commander and Grand Matron, who will stress the importance of remembering the past while refusing to allow history to repeat itself. We'll talk to a world-renowned scholar, a friend of the Knights and Daughters of Vartan, who has provided indisputable proof of just how the genocide was planned and executed, as well as who was responsible. We'll remember a man who, despite surviving the Armenian genocide, was nonetheless a casualty of it, but who today is referred to by both scholars and composers as the father of Armenian music. And we'll hear some of that music later in this program. We will then say farewell to an educator, historian, fundraiser, and on the day of the 1988 earthquake, television translator. We'll hear his own words at the dedication of a building in his honor here in New England, just a few months before the pandemic. And oh, by the way, did I mention that he also saved the New York Public Library? I'm Osbed David Medzori, Nevada Lodge Number 1, here in Boston. This is Episode 29 of the Talking Vartan Podcast. We remember. This year, the commemoration of April 24th will be very different than in the past, and that includes last year when we were all just beginning our adjustment to life in a pandemic. Since then, we've been through 13 months of social distancing, mask wearing, canceled events, and most wrenching of all, a terrible war in Artsakh last fall in which many brave Armenian soldiers gave their lives defending their homeland. Those events were heavy on the mind of Grand Commander Stephen Adams as he prepared for this year's Martyrs' Day commemoration. Avaks Barabed, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you, David. 
Tell me what goes through your mind and heart as we approach yet another anniversary of the Armenian Genocide, this one being the 106th. Well, you know, if it was under normal circumstances, we'd be getting ready to uh, fly to New York to uh, attend our commemoration in Times Square, like we've done for many, many years. And unfortunately, this will be the second year that because of the COVID crisis, we, uh, we won't be able to. But we're, we are doing an online commemoration again this year. And, you know, it was, it was kind of strange this year. I, part of the job, I guess, I have to write a lot of speeches occasionally. And I can usually sit down at my computer and I can just start typing away. And just the thoughts flow and I just type out. And a lot of times I can, I can crank out a speech very quickly. And for some reason this year, I started thinking about this a, a week or two in advance. And as I was trying to write down my thoughts, on this April 24th, I, I was, I really got uh, like a writer's block, I guess. I, for some reason. Why do you think that was? Something was wrong. I just, I just couldn't, um, I couldn't, the words just didn't flow and something was bothering me. And I just, I couldn't figure out what it was. And, you know, it was, um, it was just a couple of days before I had to actually have something ready. <clears throat> about five in the morning. It's strange. Things kind of strike me at five in the morning. I kind of woke up and, and it dawned on me what the problem was. It, it really, it just struck me that 106 years we've been commemorating the genocide. And, you know, one of the big things that we talk about, just not in just commemorating the genocide, but the message is to, you know, never again. You know, we're, we're doing this and we're, and we're remembering this genocide so others don't have to suffer through this. And it dawned on me that it's been 106 years, and where has the message gone? And it was a, out of a sense of frustration, I think, that I, I think back to all these years where we've had politicians stand up next to us at many of our gatherings and always proclaim never again. And I started to think to myself, where were you last September when our homeland was attacked in Artsakh, and it was round two of a continuous genocide that has been taking place for 106 years. And I think that's finally what dawned on me that it was it's my frustration in that, is anybody listening? You know, all of these countries that stood up with us for how many years and said, yes, we recognize the genocide. Where were you? You know, there's a saying that says talk is cheap, but you know, you, you have to act. Talking isn't enough. I think it was, that frustration that we're trying, but is it sinking in? And I think that was one of the things that just, that really kind of set me off this year uh, a little bit as to, I, I'm not sure the message is or was sinking in that not only was it never again should this happen, but it's happened to us again. And I think that's really what was, what was bothering me. I mean, I don't think there's any question. There was no question in my mind that you know, what we were seeing in Artsakh is a continuation of what was started 106 years ago. And I think the rhetoric that is coming out now is, is, seems to be all pointing in that direction. You know, it's not just driving the people from their ancestral homelands, but it's wiping out their culture where it exists. We've, we're seeing that in destruction of our cultural churches and monuments oh, yes. in Artsakh. It's heartbreaking to see those photographs and videos, you know, people of, of, it, of desecrating graves, of yes. all things, and yet we're going through it alone. Yeah, and it's it, it's something that's moved from, I know, maybe for others too, but it's not just a sense of anger, because I can be angry, 
but it's the the real hard part is the self, the sense of frustration when you you look around the world and you go why is nobody looking at this why is nobody seeing what's going on yes i understand it, you know there's a, a tremendous amount of politics unfortunately that goes along with all this you know this is not a simple event that took place this is a very complex political maneuvering by lots of countries and we're caught in the middle again as we as armenians have been and it always centuries. has been that way too it's been that way yeah. from the beginning yeah and you know i it, it really it is frustrating to, to sit especially residing over here in the united states and watching what's going on you can be angry but then you get frustrated because you say well you know why aren't there powers that, that could do something it could have said something you know why aren't they doing things you know, does it just come down to, to oil and, and natural gas? You know, is it just those politics and money? Because, you know, there's, there's rights and wrongs. And, you know, eventually you have to stand up to the politics and say, you know, this, this is just not right. And I guess our world doesn't work that way. How many people and, have heard the, the saying that uh, one thing that we learn from history is that we do not learn? Because we keep making the same mistakes over and over again, and when we're not making them, we're allowing others to make them, and we're staying silent. And of course, in this yeah. case, we're talking about the the people who are in a position of influence and power, who could have said something, who could have done something, to have, if not completely averted, at least made far less tragic the events of last year, which, of course, we're still feeling the effects of, and will for years to come. Oh, yes, absolutely. You know, I, I don't know, maybe some of this was recently I've been listening to lots of podcasts. Funny you I, should I say that. To, I, 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 I head to the gym in the morning and I've been listening to a lot of podcasts on, on dealing a lot with history. And for some reason, and I, I was never a great history buff, but I found listening to some of these podcasts on history. And maybe that's what really tipped me over that, um, that the one saying said that history doesn't necessarily repeat, it, repeat itself but it does rhyme. And I go, yeah, indeed it, it does. does. Mm -hmm. It does. It's that realization that this has been an ongoing genocide for 106 years and it's still going on. And the world doesn't want to open its eyes and see it. And I, I guess that's, that's really, like I said, it was the most makes you angry, but it makes you frustrated too. And among the things that I've heard, and I'm sure you living in the most populous state in terms of an Armenian population, how many people have said in the last six months, I wonder if we're going to continue to have an Armenia, if in one, two, five, ten years, the country will even exist anymore, or will we be just completely washed over and forgotten? Yeah. And, it's, know, a hard, and it's a hard question to answer. I mean, I, who knows? It is. If you look through our history, we have survived many, many times where if you were to have bet, you would have probably bet against us. And we seem to have always lived through. We've been subjugated, massacred throughout our history, and we, we still manage to survive. But I do realize that the world we live in today is not the same world of a thousand years ago. And it, it is more precarious now, I think. And so I think it is very incumbent upon our leadership in our homeland to be even more astute than our neighbors because we live in such a dangerous area even more than I think probably in history, to be able to maintain our culture and our, and our country. You know, we're very fortunate. You know, when I was growing up, to even think about having an independent Armenia was probably almost, we, we never even imagined it. Oh, yeah. Same here. You know, and we, 
we lived through it, you know, and we, we, with our own eyes, saw our independent country formed. So it's hard to predict what's going to happen in the future, you know, but we're a very stubborn people, you know, and I think that's good <laughs> because we're a strong very strong wills and we have a very strong will to survive and it's my my hope that you know we'll be able to continue that on professor tanner achjam has been a friend to the knights and daughters of vartan for some years now today central massachusetts is his home the history department of clark university in worcester his academic home professor achjam was born in ardahan turkey and yet among the Armenians of the world, he is a hero. For not only is he the first scholar of Turkish descent to acknowledge the Armenian genocide, he has spent decades researching, investigating, and writing about the role of those Ottoman Turkish political and military leaders whom he claims planned, carried out, and then tried to cover up the genocide. His painstaking research has uncovered documents and other materials that paint with ever-increasing clarity a picture of exactly what happened to the Armenians in eastern Turkey, and not just what happened, but how and why. As Knights and Daughters of Vartan, we had the honor of meeting Professor Akcham and seeing his evidence during our 2018 Grand Convocation in Dearborn, Michigan, evidence that he compiled and published in his book, The Killing Orders, Talat Pasha's Telegrams and the Armenian Genocide. His latest book, A Brief History of the Armenian Genocide, will be available in English later this year. Professor Akcham, first of all, thank you for joining us here on the Talking Vartan podcast as we mark now the 106th anniversary of the Armenian Genocide. And uh, I want to ask you before we get into anything very heavy, so to speak, how do you feel personally when this time of year approaches, this anniversary approaches, given where you are from and what you are doing now? What, what goes through your mind and heart each April 24th? It is a very difficult question, to be honest with you. The main reason is April 24th is like the uh, spring rain. It comes, concentrates on one day, rains very heavily, and it goes. And every year um, we have the similar question, and it, it bothers me a lot. The similar question is the following. What is American president going to say mm -hmm. whether he's going to use the G word or not. And to be honest, I'm a little bit sick and tired waiting April 24, the president's statement. And this year is the same. We have the same discussion and we have the same pro and contra argument. And in all these arguments, you cannot find anything substantive. The arguments are mostly related to the real politic of the United States. And, the, you know, the arguments are the same. People say or argue that, oh, because of this and that problem, the United States might not use the G word. And this is, at the end, indeed, what is happening. United States government every year finds an ex excuse and they don't use the G word. And it, I'm, I'm scared, not scared, but I think uh, it will be the same this year, too. It's terribly frustrating. And as you said, every single year, 
it's a disappointment. And I know that it's, it's also said by presidents during their campaign for the White House that, you know, if elected, I will recognize the Armenian genocide and then it doesn't happen. Can you tell me which one didn't promise to Armenian people that they are not recognized? I can't think of one. <laughs> and I and I know my history, Professor, and I really can I cannot think of one. Exactly, and you can really imagine how frustrating this is for the Armenian people. Every time a slap in their face with some, uh, I, I apologize for this term, with some stupid arguments. And this year we have two major arguments now. One is the Afghanistan summit in uh, Istanbul. Yes. In, Apparently, Turkey promised to take the role of United States in Afghanistan, or at least part of the role. So as, of course, a gesture Turkey expects that the United States government does not use the G word. And the second bargaining chip that the Turkish government has in their hand is the Ukraine. And um, there is a crisis going there. And Turkey promised as a NATO partner to support or give the military aid to Ukrainian government in their fight or war with Russia. And Turkey wants also another gesture from United States government, so not to use the G word. So this is the game that repeats every year. I have only one hope. This might sound a little bit funny. But I think it's a strong argument. Biden's age, he's now 74, 75? 78. 78? Yes, oh sir. Oh, my God. Yes, 78. And he has been in this game over how many years? 40 years? Uh, almost 50 years in terms of the almost United States Senate. Yeah. years in the same game. I'm very close to my 70, you know. In certain issues... I had sometimes the tendency to say, what the heck? Over 70 years, I have been doing this and that. Why shouldn't I change this? This is, as I said, I mean, it might sound a little bit funny, but Biden might think that he, at his age, he may want to be a game changer. I don't you know the American policy very well, but I heard from my uh, colleagues from the university, from my friends, that he wants to be a kind of a TD, you call it. I mean, Theodore Roosevelt. TR, uh, yeah. TR, yes. Uh, Theodore Roosevelt, and he really leave a mark there. Might be possible. This is what I believe. And, you know, maybe I have to add one thing for the listeners. Please. Everyone thinks that the recognition of Armenian genocide by United States government is a symbolic issue that won't change anything at the end. You know, it might be, uh, it is a convincing argument, it sounds. Look, France acknowledged the Armenian genocide officially. Nothing changed in French-Turkish relations. Germany recognized the Armenian genocide with a parliament resolution. Nothing has changed. Russia, Duma, officially recognized the Armenian genocide. They are military partners in Syria and uh, warring together against Americans and the other uh, uh, powers in the area. So it seems 
if a great power acknowledges the Armenian genocide, there won't be any uh, repercussion. There won't be any consequences of it. It is like, you know, the Sunday sermon in a church. So the great power goes every April 24. They visit the sermon and leave the church with good conscience. No practical consequences. And everyone might think this would be the same here in United States, and they are wrong, because United States legal system is totally different than Germany's and France or Russian legal system. Very much so, very much so. If American government acknowledges the Armenian genocide, the legal way will be open here in the United States. And we have another important step, as everybody knows, American government mainly has three branches, Senate, Congress, uh, House of Representatives, and the uh, executive branch. Executive branch, uh-huh. mm-hmm. Yes. Two of them has have already acknowledged the Armenian genocide. We have the resolutions there. And the missing part is White House. When White House calls 1915 as genocide, then the Armenians or any other interested parties had to have the opportunity to file a lawsuit against Turkish government here in the United States, and it will bring a huge economic financial pressure on Turkey. And Turkey has to do something in that regard if we if we come to that point. Is that one of the reasons you think that even after 106 years that they will still not admit to the complicity of the genocide? And the reason I'm asking you that, you made a point of this just a few minutes ago, Germany, right after World War II, had no problems admitting the Holocaust. Now, yes, there was a great deal more uh, evidence, uh, both visual and otherwise, uh, that this had occurred. You know, the survivors were still there, the camps were still there, and so it would have been a difficult thing to deny, but nonetheless, they publicly acknowledged it and apologized for it, and in so doing, the newer Germany won the respect of the world why, after 106 years, and maybe this is a very simple or even stupid question, but why, after 106 years, do the Turks continue to deny that this happened? What is the benefit to them in doing this? The first and most important answer, there is no stupid question. Every question is a great question, and this is also a great question, and the answer is there is a very simple answer and there is a very complicated answer. Let me begin with the simple answer. Yes, one of the central fear of Turkish government or governments over the decades is the question of reparations. If they acknowledge it's not genocide, I underline this one, it should not be genocide for reparation, to open the gate for reparation. It is enough to show a remorse. If Turkish government shows only an understanding that, yes, there was a mistake in the past, just this, nothing more, Mm -hmm. a mistake, a human rights abuse, something wrong uh, had been done to Armenians, then they have to rectify it. Because according to international law also, it is not only the genocide that 
creates this question of reparation. Turkey has the similar problem in Cyprus. And uh, in every bilateral relations after the war, we have the similar question. So, but there's no statute of limitation on genocide. So yes, uh, in other cases also, you cannot argue with the states of limitation. If you morally, if you say something that you did something wrong, and the expectation is to rectify it, there is no status of limitation in crime against humanity. Also. So major issue is the reparation. In Turkish case, it is not only the simple reparation. It is also, there is a psychological dimension of the issue. It's also very important. And this has nothing to do with Turkey. It's a general point also. Every nation has founding fathers. Mm -hmm. It is very difficult to call your founding fathers that you extol, that you really honor to call these fathers as criminals and thieves. This is a major problem in Turkey because Turkish state, the modern republic today, established mainly by the party that that organized the Armenian genocide. Can you imagine that a Germany that that is established by Nazis? Of course, if you have a continuity in the ruling elite, it is very difficult for that nation to acknowledge the wrongdoings. And in Turkish society today, we consider our founding fathers like Americans here in that country. They are our founding fathers and we love them and we identify with them very strongly and we extol them. And if we acknowledge the Armenian genocide, this is an very serious identity crisis. We can overcome this, we can compare this with the United States again, if society develops an identity that creates this space with its own identity and its founding fathers. This is the democracy. Right. This is the, this is the democratic relations in society. This is the parliamentarian system. This is the freedom of speech then it allows you to talk more on the Founding Fathers. In the United States, for example, we are able to teach our students in the universities that the Founding Fathers of the United States, some of them, Jefferson or others, ordered killing of Native Americans or they were slave owners. You are not going to put in prison for that reason. No. And most of them were, too. Exactly. Mm -hmm. And it is not maybe what we ultimately need. I mean, we need more. Ultimately, it's not only to have a free discussion on the founding fathers. It won't be bad if the United States publicly apologize to Native Americans officially and do some rectifications. This is one of the central problems that we have is in this country related to slavery, for example. Why we have in United States this structural racism? Because society hasn't faced with slavery not enough yet. So we need this. One of the few occasions where that was not the case and where there actually was 
a proper admission and even an apology was in the case of the Japanese Americans who were interned during the Second World War. It took a long time, though, after the war before it happened, but we did finally officially apologize to them because, as some may know, more than 100,000 of them were put into these camps. Now, they were light years away from the horrors of the Nazi death camps, but they were nonetheless put in a camp, in a cage, basically, surrounded by barbed wire. They couldn't get out. All of their belongings were taken away. Their businesses were lost. And they were there for, in some cases, as much as uh, three years. And they finally, decades later, said, this was wrong. We should never have done this. Franklin Roosevelt made a mistake in allowing that to happen. So the right thing can be done. You said, Turkey, if they were to admit today to the genocide and uh, apologize for it, yes, there would be some consequences for them in terms of perhaps reparations and all of that. But they'd also win the respect of the world for doing so, don't you think? Exactly. And they, it is a win-win situation, actually, uh, for Turkey. I mean, this classical mentality that we are facing here with a win-lose or zero-sum solution, it's not correct. Uh, one, th- one may think if Turkey acknowledges they have to give something, this is a minus This is a zero position for them, and the Armenians will win. No, Turkey will win from that process also. In long term, number one, as you said, the recognition uh, in the international arena. People will respect Turkey's attitude. Look to Germany today. Nobody blames Germany for acknowledging the historic wrongdoings. So it is very important for Turkey's status in the world. Instead of a total isolation and becoming a totalitarian, authoritarian, isolated regime, they will be respected by the world community. This is number one gain from Turkey. Number two, this will mean a democracy in Turkey. This will mean human respecting human rights in Turkey. So it is for Turkey's own sake very important. Number three, it is very important for the regional peace and regional stability. One of the central problems in the Middle East today is that history is not the past. Past is not in the past in the Middle East. Past is still is present today. So the people in the Middle East, the Armenians, you are a perfect example of it. The Arabs, the Kurds, they are looking towards Turkey from the window of history. And denying Turkey for them is a potential threat. As long as Turkey continues, I mean, continues denying the historic path, historic facts, Armenians, Kurds, Arabs think, oh my God, they will repeat. There is a genocidal potential there. So second and third reason is for the regional stability and regional peace. Turkey's acknowledgement is very important. This is not for the sake of Armenians. This is not for Armenians, for others and so on. But this is for Turkey itself, for the people of Turkey. You know, this republic was established in 1923, and almost now we are getting closer to 100 years of establishment. And this country struggles with serious, very serious human rights issues, with the issues with the democracy and freedom of speech. Why? One of the central reasons, or the main reason is that Turkey 
never faces the historic wrongdoings in the past. Do you think they ever will, Professor? Seriously, in, not even in your lifetime or mine, but do you think they ever will? Whether it will change ever, only with a possible power change right. in Turkey. And I'm very pessimist in that regard. <laughs> Professor, I know that uh, a lot of us in the Knights and Daughters of Vartan uh, were honored when you visited us in Dearborn, Michigan during our 2018 Grand Convocation and you presented much of the information that was in your just released book at the time, The Killing Orders, and I will never forget that. And I read the book right afterwards. And I'm looking at all these these documents and all of these deciphered messages and all of that. And I'm thinking to myself, uh, number one, yes, this is amazing that, that this now exists and we can look at it. But there was a, another part of me that was thinking, why would they, the perpetrators, allow this to remain in existence? You know, burn the evidence, folks. Did that ever cross your mind? Like they really didn't do the, the greatest job of covering things up back then? They did, actually, but uh, there is a problem with uh, mass atrocities. If a state involves in mass exterminations, the entire state machinery is on the work. And in most cases, you have to, uh, when the telegram comes from the region or when you produce certain documents, you have to send several copies to different departments. You know, you cannot destroy everything. Something remains somewhere, and this is what we scholars are doing. For just give an example, Interior Ministry has a security branch, and security branch has seven different departments. And when a telegram comes from a region to the interior ministry, interior minister sent this, let's say, to the security branch. And security branch produced this again for the other department, second branch, third branch, fourth branch. Or interior ministry thinks that this telegram is also relevant for the office of settlement of Armenians. Right. There is a, a office like that. And the documents goes there also. You cannot cleanse these documents from each and every places. And these are the documents that leftovers, let me say, that we encounter occasionally. And there is another important reason. Uh, they think after 100 years, they cleaned everything, you know, and there is no document uh, left there and sometimes when they make the doc when they make the documents available to us they don't read the documents in its entirety because these are all ottoman written documents right very difficult to read and some of them as you may remember from that presentation some of them are ciphered yes with arabic numbers and uh, the official in Istanbul or the officials decoded these documents on top of the numbers. And to put these letters together sometimes is so difficult. Sometimes this telegram, eight, nine pages. And what the poor clerk in Istanbul does today, he looks the first two lines and write something about these documents in the catalog because they have to summarize. Right. And when you receive these documents, 
actually the catalog summary doesn't tell anything. It says, for example, about the uh, situation on the war uh, zone in one area. But if you look the document, maybe only the first sentence is related to the war. But on page four and five, there is a killing order. Right. Exactly. <laughs> and this is what I discovered related to document December 1st, 1914. Yeah, this is how I discovered it. Now, your new book, which uh, is published, but not yet in English, that will be a bit later this year, A Brief History of the Armenian Genocide. What can you tell us about that? Any sort of a preview of what that will include? Actually, it is, as the title says, a brief summary of the Armenian genocide, and we are missing this in English language also. We have incredible important research, hundreds of, if not dozens, really, hundreds of, if not hundreds, dozens of books are published, but we have Hakun Dadrian's very important volumes. We have Richard Tovenesian's volumes on Armenian genocide. We have Raymond Kevorkian's thousand pages yes. monumental work. They are all amazing. But what we are missing in our field is a short history. And after writing this, I can tell everybody the most difficult thing is to write a short history. Because, so, of course, there's only so much you you need to know what to put in and what to leave out. And exactly. With, without, and be, yeah, without losing the context of the event itself. And, and yeah, I understand that. I understand yeah, that. and this is what we say. The simplicity is the complicated way to put the things. If you can write a sentence in a very simple way, it is a very high grade of knowledge. So You remind me of uh, the late uh, broadcaster, network broadcaster of another era, Chet Huntley, who once said that uh, the most difficult thing for any journalist or historian to do is to write short, declarative sentences. Exactly. Yeah, he's right about yeah. that as a, as a news yeah. writer of many years, believe me. Professor, yeah. I want to thank you from the bottom of my heart for taking some time to talk to us today on, uh, again, another solemn Martyrs Day anniversary, this one being the 106th. And uh, we hope that once the pandemic is over, we'll have a chance uh, to uh, see and hear you in person, not only talking about your latest book that will hopefully be in English in the very near future. It's an amazing thing that you're doing. And I, and I want to thank you for that. Thank you so much. Actually, I have to repeat, I repeat this each and every time. I'm really an humble historian, but nothing else. And I believe only in the truth. And it is really shaming. It's, I'm, I'm ashamed that saying truth wins or gains such an importance. This is something very tragic. Indeed it is. But thank you very much. You're welcome. My very special thanks to author, historian, and professor Tanner Akjan.
Now it's my honor to present the Grand Matron of the Daughters of Vartan, Alice Kalustian, and her thoughts as we mark yet another April 24th. 2020 and another conflict. Will it never stop? How many times do we have to go through this to survive? And survive we will, and survive we do. 106 years ago, our people lived through the worst experiences that anyone should ever have to endure. One and a half million of our ancestors were killed, and many others suffered unbelievable atrocities. And yet we are here, determined, maybe called stubborn by some, but we are stronger and more in number than ever before. Over the past years, many books have been written about what our people lived through. Many members of our family did not want to talk about what happened. It was too painful to remember. However, now we see that so many of the grandchildren are hearing the stories and writing about what they are hearing. The Armenians throughout the diaspora remember. Organizations like the Knights and Daughters of Vartan and the Armenian Assembly and so many others here in the United States have been persistent in pressuring the legislators for recognition of the genocide. And in 2019, they finally succeeded with both houses of Congress. Now, we also need recognition from the White House in officially joining 30 other countries along with Pope Francis and the European Parliament who have done so. In 2015, his Holiness Kadokin II, Supreme Patriarch in Kataligos of all Armenians, canonized the one and a half million martyrs of the genocide. He proclaimed martyrdom and sainthood for those killed for their faith and for their homeland. And again, this April 24th, 2021, we remember and we commemorate those who died and suffered for no other reason than because they were Armenian. We do move on, living our lives, but we will never forget. When one thinks of the Armenian Genocide as just that, the attempt to murder all of the Armenians living in eastern Turkey, the thought might be to focus on the one and a half million Armenians who lost their lives, whether through deportation, starvation, a gunshot, a lynching. They are the martyrs who died simply because of who and what they were, Armenians, and Christians. But there were other casualties of the genocide, men and women who survived the physical atrocities but could not fully recover from the horrors of what they witnessed and what they felt. One such man was a Vartabet, or celibate priest who had been born in Turkey in 1869. This is a rare recording of him made in Paris in 1912. His birth name was Sohoman Sohomonyan. By the time he was 10, both his parents had died. But before they left him, they had instilled in young Sohoman a love of music. He was enrolled in the Gregorian Seminary in Etchmiadzin after a local bishop heard him sing. He was quite the young talent. Not only was he an exceptional singer, but he became a master at both the piano and the flute. He was also ordained a Vartabed and given the name of a 7th century musician, poet, and church leader. 
Comidas. He was a choir master at the Etchmiadzin Cathedral, and he loved to write down the songs that were sung by the local villagers, so much so that they called him Nortaji Vartabet, the note-taking priest. His musical journey took him first to Tiflis in Georgia, then to Berlin, where he studied under some of the most accomplished teachers in Germany. One of his fans was composer Claude Debussy. Gomidas himself would give lectures on the history of Armenian music, before finally returning to Armenia in 1899. Once there, he went full speed ahead in both teaching and composing. He also assembled and trained a 300-voice choir of men and women and published a collection of 50 folk songs, followed by 50 more a year later. In 1910, Gomidas, now 41 years old, went to the Turkish capital of Constantinople, present-day Istanbul, where he formed the Haiguzan Choir, which would perform his compositions to mostly Armenian audiences. But the serenity of life in Constantinople would end on April 24, 1915, when Gomidas and 80 other prominent Armenians were arrested and deported to central Anatolia. It was only with the help of influential friends, including U.S. Ambassador Henry Morgenthau, that Gomidas's life was spared and he was sent back to the capital. But the atrocities he had witnessed with his own eyes after his arrest would haunt him for the rest of his life. Gomidas was thought by some to be mentally ill, even insane. Today, however, scholars and historians believe his condition would be more accurately diagnosed as post-traumatic stress disorder, or PTSD. Gomidas would spend the last 20 years of his life in psychiatric clinics. It was there that a man who would one day serve the Knights of Vartan as Grand Commander went to see him. Years later, that man would recount the visit to our Grand Commander, Stephen Adams. It was one of our past Grand Commanders, Ara Avakian, and he told the story to us. I've heard it numerous times. It's interesting. I mean, how many people do you know that actually met Gomidas? He had, um, Ara, when he was, um, I think he was just out of college, had traveled to Armenia. And he ended up coming back through Paris. And when he stopped there, he sought out Gomidas because he knew he was in, I don't know if you call it a hospital or an asylum. Sanatorium, uh, I think, was the yeah, name sanatorium, that was used at the time. Yeah, yeah maybe a, a good term. And he actually sought him out and found him and met him. And he told Gomidas he said, I, um, I so admire your work and your music. And he said, he just, he turned to me, he says, and looked at me and said, I don't like to talk about things like that now. He was so, I, I guess you would say in shock after what he had seen going through the genocide that he couldn't even relate to that music anymore, which was just heartbreaking for uh, somebody that was such a figure in our, our musicology of not just the church, but our culture. That must have been hard for Ara at the time to hear that from somebody that, that he, I know he admired. Gomidas would die in Villejuif, France in 1935. His ashes would be brought to Yerevan the following year and buried in the Pantheon named in his honor. It would be another 20 years before Gomidas's musical manuscripts, the precious few that survived, would be returned to Armenia. That music, including his Badarak, or Divine Liturgy, is why we remember and honor him today. 
It is music that touches the hearts of those who hear it. And like Grand Matron Alice Kalustian can attest, it especially touches the hearts of those who perform it. I actually was fortunate to be on a recording that we did of the from the Western Diocese of the Gomidas Badarak, and I was fortunate to be one of the choir singers. And it was so moving to know that we are continuing. We're there. We're, it's not going to go away. We're not going to go away. We're here, and our music is one of the huge things that keeps our legacy going. Years after Komidas's passing, the late Catholicos Vaskin I would say of him, the Armenian people found and recognized their soul in Komidas's music. Komidas Vartebed is a beginning without an end. Heartfelt thanks to my mother, Nakin Didui Eva Medzorian of Arpiotiag No. 9, for that rendition of Hayastan by Komidas, a song she recorded in Yerevan. This month, we said goodbye to a man who spent most of his life doing his best to help others. Dr. Vartan Gregorian was president of the Carnegie Corporation, a grant making foundation. In 1997, until his death on April 15th, at the age of 87. 
Born in Iran, he spent part of his youth in Lebanon before coming to the United States and Stanford University, where he was awarded a PhD in History and Humanities in 1964. He taught just about everywhere. San Francisco State College, UCLA, the University of Texas, and the University of Pennsylvania. Dr. Gregorian was also president of Brown University. He loved reading, and he wanted to encourage all of us to read and learn more. He was a lover of libraries. That's one of the main reasons that he took over the presidency of the New York Public Library in 1981. Back then, the library itself was in pretty rough shape. That didn't stop Vartan Gregorian. He worked to double the library's budget and helped raise nearly $400 million and was credited for restoring what was described as a crumbling landmark to a vibrant cultural nexus. Vartan Gregorian received just about every honor that could be bestowed, including the National Humanities Medal and the Medal of Freedom given to him by President George W. Bush. In Armenia, Dr. Gregorian was given the St. Gregory the Illuminator Medal by Catholicos the I. It was in Armenia back in 2009 that Vartan Gregorian called on the country to invest as much as it could in education. In his own words, we must create an opportunity for the Armenian world to pivot toward a future of prosperity, to transform the post-Soviet Republic into a vibrant, modern, secure, peaceful, and progressive homeland. It was a recognition of Vartan Gregorian's lifelong commitment to education and to the Armenian spirit that brought him to Belmont, Massachusetts 17 months ago. Nasser, the National Association for Armenian Studies and Research dedicated its new building and named it in honor of Vartan Gregorian. My family was there for the event. I was the official videographer for both the outdoor dedication ceremony and the grand banquet held the following evening in Cambridge. It was at the banquet where Dr. Gregorian accepted the accolades and thanked the country which had given him so much. I also want to thank America for what they did for us several times. One was 1915, 1920, all the missionaries and others who brought Armenians back to the United States. In 1946, displaced people brought those who were caught between Soviet and Nazi fights. They were brought to America and to America, which welcomed Armenians here because we came here to be part of it, not apart from it. We came as contributors, not as uh, detractors or as parasites. We are one, we are many, we have a past, we have a present and a future. And this is our future. It was great pride for me to be associated with Nasser's building and Nasser's mission, because having a library means we're here to stay. We're here to contribute as equals. We're not here as recipients, we're also contributors. Bartan Gregorian on a joyful weekend in November of 2019. My friend Sarah Ignatius is executive director of Nasser. We reminisced about Dr. Gregorian's visit and the reason for it. As you may know, the principal benefactors of our beautiful new building are Ed and Pamela Avedisian. Very, very generous uh, humanitarians and philanthropists. And Ed's, it was Ed's request that the building carry Vartan Gregorian's name and not his or a member of his family. 
And that's because Ed felt that Vartan's legacy and his entire guiding principle in his life was the betterment of people's lives through education and learning, the value of libraries, of intellectual pursuits to increase the value that people found in their lives. And so Ed felt that he would rather have Bartong Gregorian's name on our building than his own. And I think this is an immense tribute, of course, to Vartan and it, and so well deserved. But at the same time, it really shows Ed's values as well, his own humility. Indeed. And his own desire to do the very same thing, enrich people's lives through education. So it seemed like a perfect match. So we then had to approach Vartan Gregorian to see how he felt about it. And how did he so, feel? Well, so Ed and uh, the chairman of our board, Yervon Tikijen, and I traveled to New York to meet with him. And he knew ahead of time while we were meeting with him. And he was very hesitant. And I think that it's that, again, is his own humility. He was asking, in a way, what you were asking, why why are we selecting him? And when he realized exactly the depth of Ed's feelings and integrity in, in asking that this happen, uh, he agreed. So he was there for both of the events, the major events that weekend, and what a weekend that was, that first weekend of November in 2019, which I think you'll agree with me, Sarah, in light of everything that's happened since then, feels like a long time ago. <laughs> <laughs> not, only, not only a long time ago, but it's almost, it's such a gift. Our contractor, of course, was stellar, but they were running behind schedule. The November 1st grand opening date seemed pretty impossible. We refused to change it. So they ran three crews for three weeks before the grand opening to allow us to be able to open on time. And then we had the big gala the next night with all of our major donors who hadn't so cared about the building and had come to the grand opening, as well as our Tom Gregorian. They were all in town, so we wanted to be sure to have that. But that was our 65th anniversary. But in yes. fact, it was one year early. And had we waited, Think <laughs> had about we that. waited on any of this, not, nothing would have happened. happened. It would have been a vir- either a virtual celebration or you would have been forced to wait until the pandemic was over. And I remember because that was one of, uh, as you know, that was one of my father's very last times uh, out in public um, before he took ill. And that meant so much for him to be there as oh. well and for that weekend. And he had such tremendous respect for Dr. Oh. Gregorian, as I know everybody else did. We were so honored that your father, Jack Metzorian, was there, and we wanted him right there front and center for the ribbon cutting, having been such an essential part of Nasser for so many decades, and his, you know, brilliance, integrity, like quiet wisdom and careful thinking were instrumental in us realizing the building the way it was. That's very kind of you, Sarah. Thank you. And uh, well, there's one photograph, you've, I'm sure you've seen it a million times, that uh, really, for him, 
was so very touching, and that was the photograph that was taken at the moment of the ribbon cutting where he is standing there, you know, in his mid-90s next to yes. this little girl. Who, yes. You know, and would, so you're spanning the generations here, but this was a building that really, it symbolized that this was a building for everybody, not Absolutely. just for scholars, not just for adults even for that matter, but for everybody to come and learn and uh, experience. So that was really wonderful. Take a few minutes and just talk about your memories of Dr. Gregorian that weekend, uh, both in terms of, yes, at the banquet and at the dedication, but also any other memories that you have of him that particular weekend. That that had to be an incredibly moving period for him, too, to be part of all of that and to be honored that way. So let me just say one thing. In talking with him, he is not was not eager to have people call him a doctor. And I don't know why that was. So I'm just sharing that with you. No, I've heard but, that. He'd like to be, call me Vartan. I've heard him say yeah, that. He exactly. was saying that to people at the dedication when they were coming <laughs> up to him. As you know, I was behind the camera, but I was close enough to him. And all these people were coming up and saying, you know, Dr. Gregorian, I'm such a big fan. Or Dr. Gregorian, thank you for being here. Hey, hey call me Vartan. Call me Vartan. So, exactly. yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, yes. Yeah. So I, for the grand opening, it was really chilly. That It was a November 1st day that was not a beautiful, warm fall day, but really had a bitter wind. So I had my, kept my remarks pretty brief, briefer than I had meant them to be. But in any event, I felt exceedingly tongue-tied in front of Barton Gregorian right in the, you know, first row basically smiling at me. He had the most contented, positive look. So there was nothing intimidating at all other than the fact of who he is and what he represents as one of the leading intellectuals of the world, not just of the Armenian community. And here here he was with us at our building. But I think that his remarks that day and at the banquet what came through, again, was this immensely positive spirit. I think of just the tone that he struck of people coming together, the grin that he always seemed to have, whether he was smiling or not, there always seemed to be just a desire to bring people together mm-hmm. and to, to have us unite as people you know, not just as an Armenian community, but as a worldwide community. Were you with him when he actually had a chance to walk through the building? Uh, yes. Well, I can tell you, initially we had, uh, there were just a couple press interviews that we had set up ahead of time. And it was so crazy because the contractor actually was still in the building at 345 and the grand opening started at 4. I remember. And the Yes, and the press <laughs> interviews were to occur before the grand opening. So I remember ushering him inside a fairly chaotic building and trying to find a, a quiet spot, which was no small feat, and then moving chairs in for him and his press assistant, as well as a couple members of the Armenian press here. And he just had this same almost beatific smile. He saw the chaos. He saw everything around him. And I think he loved it. He loved the fact that it was all coming together and nothing was simple or staged, but it was all very authentic. So 
so he gave a great interview with the press and it was perfectly fine, you know, amidst all the activity. We walked through the building, but I wasn't really with him too much. We didn't have the chance to have that much of a, quote, tour, nor did anyone at the grand opening. We had tremendous rush of people coming in. And so I saw him up on the third floor in the solarium, but he was always mobbed with family and friends and well-wishers. I know that it was only a matter of months after the dedication that, of course, the pandemic hit and the uh, the lockdowns occurred and, and basically all the doors to all of the institutions were closed and uh, many still remain that way to this day. Someday, we hope very soon, uh, the doors will all be opened again. And that includes, of course, Nasser and, and all of those wonderful programs that you uh, had been holding and, and will continue to hold. When people walk in and they look there and they see his name, and they say, who was Vartan Gregorian? What is the thing about him, the most important thing to you, that you want people to know about this man? I think that the, the quote we have in, on his plaque that has a beautiful picture of him, again, with this radiant smile, is about libraries and the deep meaning of libraries for enriching people's lives. And... I feel like that message, as people come into our building and hopefully are awed by just the sheer beauty of it, uh, the second floor is our rare book, Armenian Studies Library, and that really is the heart of the building as much as the public space is magnificent, and we hope to have hundreds of people there again very soon. The Really, the reason for the new building and its principal academic draw is the Rare Book Library. So I hope people feel the power of education. I hope they feel his reverence for study, for book. I know that we, as I walk into the building, I see his face every day. And with his passing, it's very profound. I feel this his immense spirit will guide us forever and will will greet people, visitors, as they come in, and hopefully they will feel enriched as well. Well, Sarah Ignatius, I want to thank you for taking a few moments of your day today to share your thoughts and your memories of uh, Vartan Gregorian on the, the occasion of his passing. And uh, as you said, uh, yes, he may be gone, but uh, thanks to organizations like Nasser, and, and others, but in this particular case, of course, uh, the building named in his honor, a part of him will live on, and uh, he will not be forgotten. Absolutely, yeah. It's, it's, an, it's an immense loss for all of us. I think we're all still reeling from the unreality of it, but his presence and his spirit definitely will live on. Thank you again. Okay, thank you, David. One postscript, if I may. The first time I ever saw and heard Vartan Gregorian was on December 7, 1988, the day that Armenia was rocked by that devastating earthquake. I was a young broadcaster at the time, and I had just gotten off the air and was in the newsroom of the station where I worked in Manchester, New Hampshire. We had four television monitors in the newsroom so that we could see what the networks were carrying. As part of NBC's live coverage that morning, Correspondent Robert Bazell was interviewing Vartan Gregorian, asking him about Armenia and its people. 
All of a sudden, they were interrupted by word from New York that an eyewitness to the earthquake was on the phone from Spitak, the epicenter. Her name was Shake, and she could not speak any English. Quite frankly, I don't know how they found her in the first place. On the air, Dr. Gregorian was asked to translate her emotional description of what she saw as she was giving it, and he did so for nearly 15 minutes. Ask her to tell you what she's seen with her own eyes, the reporter asked. Shake, achkero vinchtersa. I was amazed and truly impressed. It was one of the many moments of that tragic day that I will never forget. I want to again thank my guests for their time on this program, and I thank you for listening. I'm Osbed David Medzorian of Ararat Lodge Number 1 in Boston. We will end this special commemorative podcast with a prayer offered to us in Armenian by our dear friend Father Aram Mizorian, pastor of St. Hovanes Armenian Church in Armenia's Tavush province city of Bert. <laughs> Amen. <laughs>